You are listening to the Life Community Church Sermon Podcast. Life Community is a church for the city, making much about the name of Christ. This podcast is available through all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. If you enjoy and are challenged by our teaching, we invite you to subscribe to the channel on whatever platform you choose as we seek to anchor ourselves to the unchanging truth of God's Word together. Thanks for listening. Hey everyone, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, we actually had some technical difficulties this particular Sunday uh, with our live stream, and so I we lost uh, the first couple minutes of the teaching, and so I have re-recorded that uh, here in my office, and just to give uh, a complete uh, picture of the of the teaching, and so. Um, You'll notice the change in audio, um, but that's all that that is. And so thanks so much for joining. Good morning, everyone. Uh, This morning, we continue our walk through the letter of the Hebrews. And last week, David spoke about verses one and two of this chapter and how each of us has a race to run and that each of our races are different from one another. I can't run your race. You can't run mine. But one thing is for sure, we all must run if we want to finish well. David also shared with us that in order to finish this race, well, we must fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the ultimate example and the author and perfecter of our faith. Jesus, who could see past the horror of the cross to the great joy that awaited him after sitting down at the right hand of God. It was for that great joy that he chose to endure the pain and shame of the cross. He understood the incalculable value of his sacrifice for all of creation. He understood that his going to the cross made it possible for all generations of believers to know and enjoy him. He could see the glory that it would bring the Father. Think about this. This sentence was administered by the Roman authorities. And they believed that this process of crucifixion was so awful, so shameful, that it was illegal to use on Roman citizens. So setting aside for a moment the absolute physical brutality that crucifixion entailed, the shame was one of the most prominent elements of the torture of the cross. And shame is the one agony of the cross which the author mentions here in Hebrews. And he said that Jesus despised it. Another translation says that he disregarded it. It was nothing to him. Why? For the joy set before him and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What a powerful thought. How great must that joy be to disregard the shame of the cross. So we pick up in verse 3, and the author says, Consider him. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. In light of what Jesus endured, consider him and do not grow weary. Do not lose hope. You see, at this particular time in history, the the Jewish Christians were really starting to face some some social and economic persecution from society around them. But, as the author points out here, they had not yet faced the shedding of blood. This had not yet escalated to martyrdom. And, And so, therefore, the author is saying With grace and truth, buck up. Come on, guys. 
We've got to be able to stand stronger than this. There is harder times to come, and we have to be ready to face it with strength and endurance. You know, we, we must be prepared to face worse because inevitably, harder times will come. And Jesus was upfront about this, right? We, I mean, he said in, in Matthew 8, a scribe comes up to him, and Jesus says, or, and, and the scribe says to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And what does Jesus say? He says, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. This isn't going to be a picnic. And he goes on in, in John chapter 15, he's speaking to his disciples. He said, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. But as it is, you do not belong to the world because I have chosen you out of it. And that is why the world hates you. See, a life following Christ was, was by design never meant to be without struggle. In fact, Jesus warns people again and again over what it might cost them to follow him. He doesn't ask us to do anything that he himself wasn't willing to do, though. And that is what the author of Hebrews is reminding his readers of here. And it is what he's reminding us of today. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. So that what? So that we would not grow weary or faint-hearted so that we may not lose hope. And this is something that we often need reminding of. You know, we live in a broken world and we have short memories, do we not? We live in a broken world full of broken people just like us. And each one of us wants things to go well for themselves, right? And that is just the natural selfish desire of our hearts for things to be what? Easy. Like, God, why can't this just be easy? How many of us have asked that question to the sky, right? right? We, we want it to be easy, but the Lord in his perfect love and wisdom knows that easy isn't always good for us. Easy doesn't point us towards him. Easy doesn't, uh, isn't, it isn't what Jesus modeled for us, and, and it isn't uh, for our good. It, it doesn't help us see our depravity or that Christ is our only hope in life and in death. But we, in our humanness, we often reject and we push back against the discomfort and the challenging circumstances in our lives. You know, we see them as, as unwelcome and bad and something to flee from. After all, how could something that makes me feel so uncomfortable and so bad and cause me so much pain be good? And much of the discouragement that is, is being felt amongst the Jewish Christians at this time was because they couldn't understand why. They couldn't see the point. They couldn't understand why, why God would allow such things to happen to them. And, and I do think that in, in some ways they came by it honestly. You know, these are former Jews who uh, would have been familiar with their people's history. And, and this was a history that in many cases showed under the old covenant that when they were pleasing God, 
that things went well for them, that, that the people succeeded. But when they broke their covenant, God allowed them to come to ruin. Until what? Until they repented and they turned back to him. And he allowed them uh, to do this because it was, it was for their good. And, and so I, I think that this in particular was a stumbling block for the Jewish Christians. You know, and I, I think that this, um, I'm going to call it people of God nationalism, uh, was, was deeply ingrained despite the words of Jesus. Right? This, is, this is by no means a, a quote from Scripture, but I imagine that they must have been thinking something along the lines of, like, if we're the people of God, that he should be blessing us, that he should protect us, that he should, uh, you know, through our success and, and, and achievement, show the rest of the world the benefit of following Jesus Christ. And I'm sure that would have seemed like great wisdom to them. And so they saw what they were facing socially and, and economically and, and, and this, this persecution as unfair. And, and they could not understand and they were discouraged. And that brings us to verses 5 and 6. He says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. I like the way the, the, the NIV translates it, and it says, have you completely forgotten the word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as a son. This is, this is meant to be encouragement to them. And, and, and what the, the writer is doing here is he's quoting Proverbs. And, and in the book of Proverbs chapter 3, uh, this, this exact um, section that I just read is listed there. And, and as you know, uh, or as many of you know, the, the book of Proverbs is, is a book of wisdom um, that is for our benefit. All right? And so he's offering up another deeply familiar concept to them to push back against the other. And he's essentially saying, don't forget. You know, in times of, of trial or stress, Christians, many Christians, forget some of the basics. Right? We forget the foundations of our faith. We, like the Jewish Christians, uh, in this letter was first written to, we wonder, is God in control? Is does he love me? Is he good? Is he, is he angry with me? You know, we just have this, this natural feeling that life is not supposed to be difficult or challenging. We, our natural aversion to discomfort and pain in almost any capacity causes us to question what we know to be true. And what, we, what do we know to be true and what we feel, when those two things come into conflict, we start to ask questions. Right? So, so what do we know from Scripture about God? We know that he is omnipotent, 
omnipresent, and omniscient, which are fancy words to say all-knowing, ever-present, and, and uh, I've lost which ones did I already say? All-powerful. There we go. <laughs> uh, and, and we know that he is love, that he loves his children. All right, so contrast that with, with what do we feel in, the, in these moments. We feel, we feel pain, rejection, loss, shame, fear, worry, fill in the blank. And so what do we do with that? You know, I, th- I see three distinct options that we, have to, that we have to consider. One, either I've displeased God and now he's punishing me. Two, God simply just doesn't care. Like God is so big and he created everything. Why in the world would he care about what I'm doing or, or how I feel? Or three, maybe our perspective is off. And I think this is where we need to land today. You know, maybe there's more to this. Maybe my comfort isn't the highest priority. You see, the author is reminding us that discomfort and pain often has a purpose and that it should never be seen as a sign of God's rejection. Rather, it should be, uh, it should be seen as a sign of his great love us. He's reminding us that experiencing difficult circumstances or stress or loss, it doesn't mean that God's removed his blessing from us, but in fact, it's the opposite. It is proof that his blessing remains upon us. It is for our good. Now, to be fair, sometimes, and maybe even often, the reason for our pain and struggle is self-inflicted by our own short-sightedness and sinful nature. Of course this is true, but sometimes it isn't. Sometimes things happen. And please hear me. I, I know the temptation there is for someone who's standing where I'm standing to, to oversimplify complex issues. So, so please hear me. And please don't misunderstand me. Though I am speaking simply about these things, I acknowledge that there are deep, real, and raw pains in this room. There are tragic situations and deep hurts that I know of, and there are many that I'm sure that I don't. The pain of of this broken world is real, and it is felt by each and every one of us in this room in varying degrees. So please don't think I'm, I'm making light of that or, or, or discounting that, uh, the weight of it, but do hear this. There is hope, and that is what we're looking to today. And that is the only good news amongst pain, right? That there is hope. That hope that the pain is not meaningless. Hope that it won't last forever. Hope that, that purpose may be found in it. See, every time I, I think about the difficult circumstances of life, I think about the testimony of, a, of, of another pastor uh, by the name of Francis Chan. And, and I'm sure that many of you have heard of him and maybe even read some of his books. Um, but years ago, I heard him speak uh, about his childhood. And he shared about how his early life was just riddled 
with the deaths of his loved ones. He he was born to uh, Chinese immigrants uh, from Hong Kong, and they moved to to San Francisco. And while giving birth to him, his mother died. And and so his father, um, not really knowing what to do, he sends his son back to China uh, to, to be raised by his grandmother until he's five years old. Then after his, his dad remarries, he brings him back. And, and so he's living with his dad and his stepmom. And three years later, his stepmom dies in a car accident. And then three years after that, his dad dies of cancer. An absolute tragic childhood that nobody would wish on, on any child. But you know how he speaks of it? He says, I can genuinely say that I am thankful for all of these things because they pointed me to Jesus Christ. I can be thankful for all things, no matter how painful, if they point me to Christ. Nothing is more important than this. This doesn't take away the pain of the loss, but pain that drives us into the arms of Christ can only be called good. It can only be called good. His loss was so great that he had nowhere else to turn, no one else to seek comfort from but the Lord. Verse 7 and 8 goes on. It says, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. See, discipline is, is not only a sign of his blessing, but it is a sign of of being his son and his daughter. And you may be thinking, I, I thought we were talking about pain and stress and worry and loss, not discipline. And I would say yes and yes, because the pain and the struggle of this life is discipline, though maybe not in the sense that, that you, you think. You see, the, the Greek word for discipline here is paideas, which refers to the tutorage, education, and training of children. Instruction, nurturing. And the discipline referred to here is that which instructs and guides towards what is best. It is God treating us as his sons and daughters. Again, this is, this is back to the basic foundational beliefs of Christians. God is to us as a loving father Good father, good mother is to a son or daughter. Now, everybody in this room, you know, we do not all know the, by experience what a good father is. But we do all have the intuition of what a good father is, and God gave us that intuition in his image. Because he is that perfect Father, And the reason that we might feel cheated or discouraged or disappointed by a bad father is because we can intuitively compare them 
to our good Father in heaven, whether we realize it or not. And an important note on this discipline that God has for us, it is never, I I repeat, never to make us pay for our sins. That price was paid once and for all by Jesus on the cross. And his correction and is motivated purely by his love for us, not his justice. Verse 8 says that if you are left without discipline, then you are illegitimate children. You you see, many of us become worried and burdened when we feel that loving correction from the Lord, the discipline of the Lord. But really, it's when God allows us to go our own way that we should be worried. When a father chooses to withhold his loving correction, his children walk toward their own destruction. You know, the the amount of times I've had to tell and retell Micah, our three-year-old, that he cannot drive his power wheel on the street is alarmingly high, right? You know, why? Because he's three years old and he has no idea what's good for him. All he does is he sees other cars driving the road. He sees us drive our cars on the road. And so he wants to do it too. But what do I want for him in that situation? I want him to trust me. I want him to trust that, that I know what's best for him better than he does. But he doesn't. He doesn't trust me. He trusts his feelings. Right? He, he feels that there is fun being withheld from him, and he doesn't know why. He doesn't thank me for my discipline. But what kind of father would I be if I decided to stop correcting him? It would be as if I weren't his father at all. It is because he is my son, it is because I love him, that I faithfully and consistently remind him of the danger. Paul David Tripp, pastor, he wrote this in regards to the discipline of his own children. He says, I can honestly say that there weren't many moments in my children's lives when they seemed genuinely thankful for the discipline of their parents. They tended to see discipline as vengeful, harsh, punitive, and unloving. Our children didn't seem to understand that our discipline wasn't the suspension of our love, but the result of it. God's discipline isn't the suspension of his love. It is the very result of that love. So we continue through verses 9 and 10. It says, Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. God's discipline is better than mine. His discipline is better than yours. It is better than your father's. It is better. He disciplines, he instructs, he corrects us for our good. Not in the short term but for eternity. You see, 
all discipline has an end in mind. And that end can be either good or bad. Right? It can be short-sighted or it can be far-reaching. You know, we can, we can recognize bad discipline when we see it. You know, we've seen or, or maybe heard of discipline in abusive relationships. And we've seen good discipline from healthy relationships. And each of those disciplines has an end or a reward in mind. You know, for the abuser, what is the end? What is the reward? Submission. Control. Yeah, that's it's not good, but good or not, it is the intended end in that situation. But what about for a loving, good, godly father or mother? What is the intent? What is the reward? It's flourishing. It is a rich, meaningful life that is not void of pain or suffering, but one that sees the purpose in it. One that understands the point of it and the reward to come after. Now, I, of course, want to count myself amongst the loving father group that I just discussed, but, but here's the deal. No matter how much I love my son and do my best to try lovingly correct and discipline him, I'm going to fail. I am going to mess up. I'm going to do something wrong, and at some point I am going to get angry, and I will inevitably, oh, I've already done all of this that I'm talking about, but <laughs> again, I will inevitably discipline him out of anger and not love. I will allow my pride to get in the way of what's best for him. But our Lord won't ever do that. His discipline is perfect. And his only motivation is love. And this means that we can trust him. And this is where we must move, as Paul says, from milk to solid food. We must learn to trust the Lord in his goodness, in his love, and his power. We cannot, every time we face hardship and testing of our faith, throw up our hands in frustration or, or shake our fists at God or question his love for us. Yes, God allows sinful, bad things to happen in this world. That's part of free will. That's part of giving us the choice to choose him or not. And if you never allow yourself to digest and accept that, you will find yourself questioning God's goodness at every crossroad you meet. We must trust him. And here's the good news. He wastes nothing. He wastes nothing. We must actually believe that he can use anything and everything to draw us closer to him. We must actually believe that Jesus paid the price for our sin once and for all. And when we do, we get to experience the joy of the new kingdom. We don't have to wonder if we are being punished for our sin. We can trust that it was paid for once and for all. And we can trust that his plan is good and for our good. 
And I don't mean good in the sense that, that we would be comfortable and happy all the time. That has never been promised, and that's not what we find in Scripture, and that's not what I'm talking about. I mean good in the sense that glory is his and his alone. That what we face on earth serves a purpose, and that purpose is to shape us into the likeness of Jesus Christ, the founder and perfecter of our faith for the glory of God. And this is where that change in perspective comes into play. We must be able to see the difference between just suffering and training. Right? And that's what verse 11 uh, kind of instructs us. And he says, it tells us to look at the result of discipline more than the process of discipline. Verse 11 says this, for a moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Like I said earlier, discipline always has an end in mind. It's the peaceful fruit of righteousness in our lives. And here we come back to that race analogy that that we saw in verses 1 and 2. Suffering for suffering's sake is foolishness. We don't, you know, we don't suffer just to suffer, right? And we don't seek out suffering either, right? In some misguided attempt to, to strengthen ourselves. No, but when we do face it, we face it with the end in mind, resting in the grace and the sufficiency of Christ. It's training. It is training that conforms us into the likeness of Christ. And there is a name for this process of training, a name for the race that we run, and it's called sanctification. And it is a process. It is not something that happens all at once. When you, give your, your, you submit yourself to Christ, it is a lifelong process full of ups and downs that serves to bring us to the end of ourselves so that we might learn to find rest in his sufficiency. You know, when I was, when I was young and, and sometimes still, if I'm honest with myself, I just want Jesus to come and to magically fix all of my issues. Right? I, I just want him to take away my sinful desires so that I can more easily please him, to, that he would smooth the road out in front of me. You know, for example, we love the story of the addict that God just set free one day. Right? The, he just set down the pills or the bottle or the needle and never touched it again, never felt that desire for it again. Like, that is an amazing and powerful testimony. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we all kind of want that in the sense that to one day never desire the, the thing that held us prisoner for so long. Whatever it may be, we want uh, that for ourselves because in our eyes it is easier than the race that God has set before us. Right? To just stop desiring sin would be so much easier than the race that I have to run that causes me to stumble over my pride again, again, in this faithful attempt to humble me. This, this race before me that causes me and forces me to battle in my soul against my, my sinful desire, my selfish desires, 
or the grace and the truth and the sufficiency of Christ. Every day, it seeks to slowly conform me to his likeness. Why am I telling you this? This is what I found to be true. The sanctification process is one that often brings us to the end of ourselves. And the reason for that is because at the end of ourselves, we accept our insufficiency. And we can submit ourselves to him. Sanctification is disciplined, determined faithfulness over time. A commitment to God and his word and his work here on earth. And it is for our good. Joseph, the, the son of Jacob, understood this better than most long before the writer of Hebrews was even born. His brothers, many of you guys know this story, they, out of jealousy, they, they threw him in a pit and, and they sold him into slavery and thus begins an incredible adventure, challenging one, but an incredible adventure for Joseph. You know, he, he does well for himself. He he, you know, he enters this household of a man named Potiphar, and, and he is raised up to be second in command of this household until the wickedness of Potiphar's wife lands him in an Egyptian prison. And then, through a series of events that only God could have orchestrated, Joseph is raised from prison to second in command of all of Egypt. So that when his family needed help, he would be in a position to help them. And, and years and years and years down the road, when he meets his brothers again, they're fearful that he would take vengeance on them. But what does he say? He says, do not fear, for, I am, in the, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it. For good. Amen. God meant it for good for Joseph, and he means it for good for us today. I love the way that, that Scott Grant, pastor, he's, he says it this way. He says, in the first book of the Bible, we see the truth of Hebrews 12 lived out in the life of a man of faith. The sin against him, though designed by humans for evil, was also designed by God for good. The evil that we experience in this world, in God's amazing economy, is evidence of a loving father who wants his precious sons to experience all his gifts. This is the great surprise in suffering. So what do we do with this? Thankfully, the, the writer tells us in, in verses 12 and 13. He says, therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Get back in the race. Start walking again. Do not grow weary. The great hope that we have is amidst our struggle and our difficulty, amidst our training, God is working both in us and around us. So therefore, 
stand up straight and get back in the race. Allow the testing of our faith, God's perfect discipline, his loving correction, his training for us to strengthen us and our trust in his plan. Who knows? Maybe someday you'll look back and see what God was doing. Maybe not. There's certainly no guarantee of that. But the guarantee that we do have is that he is working, wasting nothing, drawing us closer to him. Amen? Amen.